Welcome to the Food Fight Podcast. I'm Lakshmi Baldassan. And I'm Matt Eastland. And we're both from EIT Food, Europe's leading food innovation initiative working to make the food system more sustainable, healthy and trusted. As we come to the end of our current series and have just published our 50th episode, Amazing, we're back with the last show of what we like to call The Big Takeaway. It's been a really complicated and disruptive 12 months for the food industry, and we've had loads of amazing discussions with people and companies trying to make a positive impact and drive exciting innovations in the food system, including... We don't value the food that we have. We don't value the time. We don't have time to value, you know, in order to kind of start fixing all of these things. We need to look at society from a top-down perspective and start kind of really unpicking it. And a bit of this. Insects are undoubtedly more sustainable in terms of protein production alone. Insects can really, really change the game. What an unusual year. So we've covered everything from extreme places to grow food, to adding insects to your diet. What has been some insights for you, Matt? We had some really interesting guests talking about food packaging and plastics and, you know, the kind of confusion around that. And that was really fascinating. And also, I think one of the other episodes I really enjoyed was around regenerative agriculture, sort of not colliding, but sort of coming together with big tech, potentially. Yeah, you're right, Matt. I think, you know, the food industry really hasn't been stopped by COVID-19. And if anything, it's just made it more inventive. But the thing that's really shone through is the resilience and personal drive that a lot of leaders in the industry have displayed. Yeah, that's right. It does seem like there's been a real shift in values that's been amplified by our current conditions. So, you know, did you get the sense from the guests that we've interviewed that people's motives have started to change? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked to some amazing guests and you really got the sense that You know, previously, where the food industry was really driven by sort of the economic outputs, we're really seeing a shift towards being driven by purpose, thinking about sustainability and really putting consumers at really at the heart of delivering a sustainable food system. Yeah, I love it. So in this episode, we want to focus on some of those people who we've been really inspired by and spend some time trying to identify the values and qualities behind those incredible people. Let's start with sustainability. That's been a massive refocus for the industry over the past couple of years, especially. I'm focusing on growing food in space, in deep space. We can't just rely on bringing supplies from Earth all the time. So we'll need to start growing food locally on the moon, on Mars, on board of a spaceship. And so that's the main reason this has been a research topic for quite some time, actually. If you want to develop a space crop that is really ideal to grow in space, it needs to have a multitude of properties. And first of all, it needs to have a high nutritious value, of course. You need to be able to cultivate it in a very compact way, low resource needs, low maintenance. It needs to grow as fast as possible and it needs a high harvest index. That's like the ideal crop, of course. It's like basically the ideal crop on earth, but on steroids, you know, it's like really just trying to maximize every single thing in that plant. So that was the brilliant Angelo Vermeulen, who's the co-founder of Seeds, which is the space ecology's art and design, who, yes, you've just heard it, is working out how to grow food in space. So he joined us for a conversation with our guest, Benjamin Vidmar, 
who's the founder of Polar Permaculture Solutions, who is growing food in Longyearbyen, the northernmost town in the whole world, which is pretty extreme. Yeah, and you know the conversations we had with both of our guests then were really, really fascinating. But it wasn't just to kind of talk about interesting things they were doing. The purpose was really to highlight the need to study the growing method that they're already looking at in these extreme conditions so that we can then rise to the challenges and open up the world to more localized farming methods right now. Just living here, it's very challenging for food. It's very mm. expensive to send it here. Like salads and herbs and things like this, you can't put it on a ship. It has to come by plane. And anything you put on a plane is very, very expensive. And you know, it's just so challenging. And I just didn't understand. Like I was reading around, like how many people in the Arctic were starting to grow their own food. And I just didn't understand why anyone here didn't consider it. We have a university. We have the Norwegian Polar Institute. We have so much infrastructure, but it's like they only care about what's here now. You know, what, mm. they don't want to change things. But the problem is everything is changing. If, for me, it came down to the, it was very easy. It came down to either I was going to grow my own food or I was going to leave. We just need to work together. We need to we need to figure out some way to do this where we don't deplete all of the resources and we don't, you know, use up so many of the things that we have now. And it can be done much smarter. And I think we need to really move away from this, uh, you know, linear economy. I think we need to figure out a way to repair and to, you know, reuse things and not just buy, throw and buy again. Amazing. I mean, Benjamin's drive to change how things were done has led him to become basically an accidental entrepreneur. This was really the story for a lot of the people we spoke to in this last series. But contrary to what you might expect, Benjamin's solution for growing food in the icy tundra didn't revolve around futuristic tech. Instead, his approach was really about focusing on applying common sense. So really trying to understand the conditions he was working in and just making the appropriate choices. So, I mean, Lakshmi, this was obviously one of our highlight episodes kicking off the series, but what, what are the things that really struck you here? Yeah, I really like the fact that he wasn't going to sort of follow the status quo and he saw an opportunity to make things really more local, which I think is a lot of what's become really evident as we sort of all of us have tackled the challenges faced by COVID is how can we make the most of the resources that we have around us? And then how can we all become our own entrepreneurs to take matters into our own hand? Yeah, I love that. And just the fact for me that he sort of stepped into a void, right? I mean, he came to this place and he was just confused as to why nobody else was doing this. And it, it just takes somebody like Benjamin to be like, this can be done and it can be done well. And he's had that resilience to push through it. So, you know, hats off to Benjamin for all that great work he's doing out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think the outcomes from both of those projects is going to have a big impact. For sure. And really understanding the environment and really going back to common sense principles has been a real theme in other areas of agriculture too. This is what led us to having a conversation around regenerative agriculture with Anna Degon. Well, regenerative agriculture is basically recovering and regenerating what we have lost. And the focus of that regeneration is the soil. So living mm -hmm. soil is the capital of any farmer. And any action needs to go in favor of promoting that living soil, recovering it and healing it and, and promoting it. In order to achieve that, what's really important is to know about the connections, the incredible symbiotic connections between soil, plant, 
herbivore, bird, all of the microbiology that is involved in each of those groups, and mm. the human as the manager of that. So regenerative agriculture, in a nutshell, is about designing things well so that everything is connected and everything is nurturing and regenerating each other. Mm. That's the idea. And coming in from a different angle, we also heard from Eli Englard, who's the co-founder of the startup Trellis, who has created a tech-driven platform to help farmers use big data and AI. He shared his hopes for a future where both traditional methods and tech, like AI, can work in harmony. AI and cognitive learning is just another tool that we didn't have in the past and we have today. And the goal of this tool is to help managing exactly those trade-offs of looking into the future and understanding how decisions we make today are going to affect the future, especially in dynamic systems like agriculture, where we have to take into account the environment and what farmers are doing and, and soils and, and many factors into play. When we look at large-scale systems and we're looking ideas like regenerative farming and we're thinking, okay, how can we apply that scale? in multiple mm -hmm. regions, in multiple crop types, multiple environment. AI, machine learning, cognitive learning can help us do that. So it can help us magnify the effect of things that are good things that are happening and can help us also reduce negative things that we're seeing across the system. The key is to be able to have enough data. So Right. I think one of the things that helped us understand that what we're doing today in large-scale farming practices is wrong is the fact that we have data. Yeah, that was great. And so fascinating to hear what um, Eli and Trellis are doing. So, you know, using data to help forecast and manage agricultural practices, which, you know, really helps agri-food enterprises to preserve resources, increase sustainability, and while also, I guess, crucially from a business perspective, increasing profits too. I thought this was one of those great episodes that we had. And I think going into it, we, we were both really interested to understand what would be the position of both of the guests. So obviously, you know, Eli comes in from this very high tech perspective and Anna was coming from more sort of traditional regenerative soil focus perspective. But I think what you said, Lakshmi, absolutely nailed it. it. It's about this harmony between the two. And I think both guests were really interested in what the other side was doing. And they realized as we were going through the conversation that actually by listening and learning from each other, there is a potential here to really sort of focus on increasing and enhancing the sustainability of farming, which was just amazing to kind of hear them discuss that. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the the current agriculture industry, you know, has really stepped up to the plate when we needed massive quantities of food. And that's mm. what it did really well. It was really focusing on quantity over quality. And I think what I took away from that is by applying technology and looking at data, it's really about fine tuning. It's about, okay, we know how to make a lot of food, but actually, how do we continue to have those outputs based on demand? Because what we know right now is there's way more supply than there's need, and which leads to things, you know, that we talked about on this podcast is food waste. And mm. if we can really, you know, use technology to produce food in a sustainable way, you know, taking the needs of the soil and the needs of the consumers, I think we'll have a much more balanced outcome, really focusing on providing the right amount of food, but high quality food. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Yeah, super fascinating episode. And, you know, I know that um, 
Anna and Eli were were even saying off the when we stopped recording that they were going to be talking to each other afterwards. So a, a great connection made there between two very interesting people doing amazing things. And you mentioned it there, actually, Lakshmi, talking about food waste as one of the major sustainability challenges that we're all facing in industry and at home. And, and this is somewhere we, we'd like to go next. The biggest problem areas for food waste, I guess, is an existing structure within the industry, an expectation that food waste is still OK. You know, we really need to market this as a campaign that it really isn't OK. There's been a lot of traction in the last few years, and I've been in, involved in a lot of campaigns to try and change this but you know on the grand scheme of things it's restaurants pre what's happened now we're already under a lot of pressure I think you know food waste comes when you've got a head chef in a restaurant who thinks it's okay because there is a quite a hierarchical structure in the kitchen that tone and that philosophy and that teaching will come from that head chef and and everybody who works below them so we need you know perhaps we need governmental intervention and support so that kitchens can actually start measuring their amount of food waste and plate waste you know, our economy is going to be more challenged than ever now. Um, So it makes sense to start saving where we can. And one way that we can save is definitely food waste. So what we do at Orbisk is we focus on food waste monitoring in the hospitality sector for now. What's going on in restaurants? In restaurants, there's a bin in the back of the restaurant and there's heaps and heaps of food going in there every day. About 10 to 30% of everything that's being bought is going into the waste bin in the back and there's no information whatsoever on the volumes, the type and the reason for that food going to waste. What we focus on is to fully automatically register what is going to waste and why. We do so by employing artificial intelligence technology in order to register the food going to waste in that bin. We outfit the waste bin with a weighing scale and a camera unit. And every time you throw something away, a picture is taken of that throwing away action, quantifying how much of that is going to waste, but also by means of computer vision technology, seeing from the picture what sort of ingredients were going to waste. You just heard from sustainable restaurateur Alice Gilsonen of Nature London, a pioneer of zero-waste restaurants and catering, and also Olaf van der Veen, who is the CEO of Orbisk, a startup using technology to tackle food waste in the industry. So, I mean, from those discussions, Lakshmi, what was your big takeaway? Uh, What I thought was really interesting is sort of, you know, that people are taking food waste into their own hands. But what really needs to be done to really tackle this at sort of a systems level is that it needs to be tackled at a commercial level, which is exactly what uh, Olaf is doing. And I think putting a camera on a bin that's being able to quantify the amount of waste that runs through a restaurant, being able to really see what you're wasting makes it a little bit more easier to tackle the waste. So basically what we've got is you've got someone like Alice who's like a a food hero, like you say, taking taking things into her own hands and working on like menu design and changing the things that she's able to control. And then somebody like Olaf, who's been like, okay, great, but how do we make this simple and bring it to a really big commercial level to scale this up? And again, you know, what what a lovely kind of harmony that those two things are. And I think the really nice thing about Olaf is he's just integrating his technology into an existing system, making it really easy to use and scalable. Yeah, always a winner. And going from the restaurant setting into the home where huge amounts of food are also being wasted. That's right. We all need to be playing our part too. So Annie Gray was also a fantastic guest. She joined Alice on this show and Annie studies food from a historical perspective. She had really interesting views on what we could learn from the past on an episode that we called Waste Not, Want Not. 
One of my favourites is a it's an early Edwardian vegetable curry, and it's really good both for the kind of opposite of gluts in the garden because people always talk about gluts, but in my experience, it's more likely that you end up with a handful of broad beans or one courgette that didn't really work or half a sort of radish or something. But it's also very, very good for using up both small amounts of raw and cooked vegetables. Being Edwardian, it starts off with a cucumber and an apple chopped up with some onion and garlic, which you then fry off. Absolutely. Well, it's a substitute (laughs) for the tamarind and things like that, which weren't very easily available. And then you throw in a load of curry powder, some tomato puree, in go all your vegetables, whether it's small or large amounts, a load more curry powder, some stock and you simmer them down till they're cooked through which if it's cooked already really doesn't take very long and then chuck in loads of cream at the end and it's a surprisingly lovely recipe because the fruitiness of the cucumber and apple mixture really does round out and make it quite unusual. I really love chuck loads of cream at the end that's exactly what I've done with that whole crisper cupboard full of celery chuck a lot of cream on it and (laughs) celery tastes beautiful as soup yeah i don't know if that it's like food waste to the cost of health right but uh yeah i do one of the things i do i did really love about annie was the fact she shared all of these tips but you know she's talking about the fact that the edwardians even used curry who knew you know curry as a way of saving food waste back in the day which obviously she's carried through now which is great she shares so many tips which are too many to go into now but i really would recommend everybody to have a look at that show we called waste not want not uh, and to go through those tips for many and another thing you know just um making the most of the food that you have available in your refrigerator Annie went on to talk about how the younger generation seem to be becoming quite disconnected from food and its production. People are very much more disconnected than they used to be. And sometimes it can be brought home to you in a very salutary fashion. I was uh, dressed as a Victorian at one point in a museum in Great Yarmouth, which is one of Europe's most deprived areas. So it receives a lot of EU funding and and all the other markers of deprivation. Uh, And I was plucking a pheasant. And this child came in, who must have been about six or seven, and said, what are you doing? So I said, what, well, plucking a pheasant? And he said, what's a pheasant? And I said, oh, gosh, um, well, it's a, it's a bit like a chicken. And he just looked at me and just a scathing expression came across his face. And he said, don't be stupid. Chickens don't have feathers. No. And oh yeah. So and so even you know, I'm well aware of the general lack of knowledge among a lot of people. And I don't I and mean, while it can be seen as deplorable or it can be seen as a terrible thing, you know, I I'm very, very wary of blaming mm. people for the fact that they are not knowledgeable in a way that I am, because everybody has different sets of knowledge. But that one shocked even me. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, actually, that story really shocked us. I mean, it was kind of funny in the moment, but actually on reflection, we were both like, my God, you know, that's quite challenging. Uh, And part of the problem with food, as we've been discussing it, is that is it does come in in a plastic package and and we just really eat it without considering its origin and journey. We don't know what it looked like as an animal when it started. So that's a big issue, particularly for kids. And, And how do we solve that? And one of the ways uh, which we discussed is about getting more exposure of food to kids in school. So for Farmer Time, for example, we work with over 15,500 children, regularly connect every couple of weeks with our industry and have that conversation. So the farm will be live out on farm discussing what they've been doing that week and, and mm. um, what's been going on more widely. I remember this class in Birmingham, actually, a class of nine-year-olds 
by the time they were talking about their fourth session, they were looking at renewable energy supply on farm. And these were nine-year-olds that were having that greater depth of knowledge exchange with the, with the farmer in front of them. And so last year, we, we noticed an increase and 43% of the, the farmers and schools were looking at careers. And this year, we've just had our impact report through and 71% are now looking at careers. So what started as a very simple way, FaceTiming that farmer, has developed actually into whole supply chain, whole industry at quite a rapid rate. We've got over 150 schools now waiting to be matched with their farmers. So we're doing a shout out for more farmers in the UK to sign up. Uh, we've also launched in Sweden, uh, in Denmark, in Ireland, in Australia as well. So we're really keen that this becomes a way of easily connecting with young people through the industry. So that was Carl Edwards from the organisation LEAF, Linking Environment and Farming, who joined us on an episode about the skills that we need to attract into our industry. And, you know, everybody on the show was talking about the fact that they thought that there was a bit of a skills gap and that more needed to be done here. So I I guess, you know, Lakshmi, what, what were your takeaways here? How do we inspire the next generation? And, you know, where are we heading here? Well, I think from that episode, the big takeaway for me is that it's actually not all doom and gloom. It is quite positive. You know, organizations like LEAF are ensuring that the next generation is connected to where their food is coming from. And a really nice thing about it, and you know, this big focus sustainability is it's making sort of farming sexy again. Hmm. It's making it as an interesting career choice because it actually really connects with people's purpose. Hmm. And I think, you know, there's a really great young role model. There's Greta Thunberg, which I think you know, a lot of young people are really aware of. And combining it with initiatives like LEAF, I think the future of food and sustainability looks quite hopeful. I think that was a big takeaway for me. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, you know, if we can continue educating children in, in this way, you were definitely going to be inspiring young entrepreneurs and more and more young entrepreneurs who want to make the world a better place for all the right reasons, which was great. Yeah, exactly. And it connects back to what we said in the beginning, right? A lot of the takeaway is really making businesses shift towards being driven by purpose rather than just the economics of it. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about sustainability. We talked about the skills. And, you know, my favorite episode that we've done is really about talking to the people, the people who are driving the future of the food system. So our episode of the entrepreneurship journey to me was really interesting. Yeah, that's when we spoke to three young entrepreneurs who were involved in that journey through the food industry. And the interesting thing is that two of them actually had no intention of becoming entrepreneurs in the first place. And they were just connected with an idea, spotted an opportunity and just really, you know, went for it and drove through. Literally zero business economic background from my side. Um, I went to university to study industrial design and technology you know, never really had an idea to become an entrepreneur until it was actually a university project that got a lot of attention. So I always say that the business happened to me. So I think, no, you don't need experience because I definitely had absolutely like less than zero business experience when I started. But what you do really need is like the mindset to learn and 
accept help and be willing to say like enter pretty big rooms sometimes and say like hey guys I'm completely new to this I'm here to learn like so be really open to accepting mentors listening really carefully to what your customers are telling you like even though you want to hear them say everything is wonderful and we love your product you really need to listen to what they're telling you overall the thing that's going to pull you through is a bit of a naive enthusiasm that you need to put the energy into it and to be willing to learn things along the way. It's probably the first time that I go to a meeting and not everyone is saying, oh, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, which is what usually happens. And then I go, I never even thought of putting together a startup that people look at me strangely because apparently most people think that you, you know, you need to fail several times before you can put together a successful startup. Uh, In my case, I mean, the story is quite different, but also it kind of happened uh, to me. Uh, It wasn't really something planned. I was just doing my PhD and I just happened to observe a novel physical phenomenon that uh, wasn't really known at the time. Uh, a start, you know, putting together a startup was still not the plan. So I, I really kind of sympathize with Sovega's story because also I didn't realize until a few months into it that what I was actually doing was putting together a startup. So you just heard then from Solvega Packsteiter from the startup Mimica and also Lorenzo Conti from Crover. And it was really fascinating to hear about their entrepreneurial journeys because they were all at different stages. What did you take away from it, Lakshmi? I think it just really made me feel great about what I do. And, you know, the work we do with the IT food and entrepreneurs is for us, it's really about the focus on the people. You know, you don't have to be a business person. You don't need to have the industry skills. You just have to have the passion to know that you want to make a difference. You know, they saw that change was needed and they just sort of rose to the challenge. And, you know, we see this time and time again with all the entrepreneurs that we work through all of our different business creation programs. You know, we did hear from two entrepreneurs who kind of, they were accidental entrepreneurs, but in the episode, we also heard from Ying Xiao from Plantic Biosciences to start up looking into new advancements into plant breeding. And Ying was on the really on the other side of the coin. You know, she always knew why she wanted to be an entrepreneur. And she really dived into something that really resonated with both her desire to be an entrepreneur, but driven by purpose. The big takeaway from us there was that you you really don't need to be an expert, like you say, Lakshmi, to make a successful impact in the sector. You you really just need to have the purpose and the drive to see something through. And all of their stories kind of resonated there. And uh, yeah, it was just great to hear on of all of them on the different stages that they're at um, from really early scale all the way through to sort of a more mature startup like Mimica. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the future of the food industry is bright, particularly with these sort of bright young talents coming through. And and here at EIT Food, we really want to support all those people who want to make a difference. And in our episode, Innovating Through Adversity, we were joined by our very own CEO, Andy Zinger of EIT Food, who spoke about the COVID-19 bridge fund that we'd launched, which was a 5.4 million euro investment fund helping startups specifically through the crisis. We put together a program to look for startups that are suffering, uh, that first of all, that are suffering from the impact of the pandemic, but more importantly, have products and services that can help us to achieve our longer term impact objectives. So making both the people in the EU and the planet healthier. And that's where we found those organizations. And two of them are here in this program right now. And we are very happy and uh, proud to have been able to award them funds. And we didn't just stop there. So we didn't just stop with the 
with the venture support instrument that we received from the EIT, for which we're very grateful, but we also added in some of the additional funds that we still had because we thought, this is the moment, these are great businesses, they'll have a great impact, they will be the survivors and the people that'll thrive after the COVID crisis. And so we thought uh, it's a great instrument. And again, we're very grateful to both the European Union and the EIT to have been enabled to make this instrument available to those startups in the agri-food business. You know, the big takeaway for me from listening to Andy and from, you know, all the great work that we've done through supporting startups this year is, you know, we still need great projects and innovations and companies to really take up the mantle and pull everyone together towards our shared goal for a more sustainable future of food. And this is really what we try to influence at EIT Food. So for all of those of you listening, please do check out our website to learn more about the startups and the projects we supported. And, you know, if you're a budding entrepreneur, this is the perfect time to sort of apply to some of our programs. Yeah, we hope you realize that anyone can join this food fight. It's not about experience or skills. It's about that purpose-driven character that uh, we've, we're talking so much about. Yeah. To conclude, another fantastic series that we've had. And I guess the question we wanted to ask is, you know, has the industry changed over the last year? And I think absolutely it has. You know, we're seeing that innovation is coming from people who want to do good and improve our way of life, not those who are necessarily just interested in making money. Absolutely, the money will come, but purpose has definitely been that that driving force and, and making a difference and, and challenging the status quo. So we all here at EIT Food and certainly from the Food Fight podcast, we, we just wanted to say thank you, a big thank you to all the heroes and guests on the show. You've all done an amazing job this year. Yeah, Matt, I agree. It's uh, definitely for me, it's been you know quite a heartwarming episode to sort of take stock and review all the good stuff that's been taking place over the past year. So much good energy in the food industry, and I really look forward to hearing more great stories. Thanks, Lakshmi. So from us at the Food Fight podcast, we're going to be taking a short season break for a few weeks while we get ahead of ourselves recording a few more episodes with some of these amazing heroes. But in the meantime, if you'd like to know more about EIT Food and check out all those startups, projects and activities that we're supporting, then please go to our website, eitfood.eu or check us out on Twitter at EIT Food. So from me, Matt. And from me, Lakshmi. Until next time, goodbye from us. Mm-hmm.